is Bad Boys and Beyond with your hosts, Mike Payton and Keith Black Trudeau. The game's over and the Pistons have won the world championship. Welcome back to Bad Boys and Beyond. I am your host, Mike Payton. With me, as always, is your other host, Keith Black Trudeau. We are doing a, a fun little show today, a show that I think we should have done two weeks ago when the trade deadline was happening, uh, because we are talking about Pistons trades today. We're going to be doing the best trades, the worst trades, and then just the weird trades. And uh, we've got some, a really interesting list here today. Obviously, Keith, um, has us going back to 1932 uh, when the Pistons trade did uh, Jumpin' Jack Hayes for, uh, I don't know. Uh, Traded Bill Neal from the uh, assembly line at the at the Pistons plant in Fort Wayne right. for, for Jeff from uh, the, the Ford plant over, over yeah. yonder just happened to be six foot four. Right. Well, you know, uh, we... <laughs> Trader Jack looked around the, the locker room and saw we needed a, a, a washing machine. So he, he's pretty aggressive. Uh, that's that's a semi-pro joke. I love that movie. Uh, all right. Yeah, so we're going to talk about trades today, and uh, I'm excited to uh, to get into this. But before we do, uh, we got a, a couple of current things we'd like to talk about. Uh, first off, uh, James Wiseman made his Pistons debut against the Boston Celtics, and he... He looked pretty good. 12 points, six rebounds, uh, had some nice defensive plays. Shot looked good. Uh, I mean, I'm not, I don't want to overreact or anything, but I, I feel a little better than I did before. Yeah. Re- realistically, I thought that was, it, it, look, it wasn't the best possible scenario, but I, I thought for realistic outcomes for his first game, having one practice under his belt and not really having played for the Warriors in seven weeks, at least not any real minutes. You th- you figured he'd be a little out of shape, and he did look a little out of shape. Uh, but all things considered, I, I thought it was a really good uh, debut. Uh, comes off the bench. Uh, he, yeah, he took a lot of shots, but that's what I want to see out of him because he he's he's seven one two fifty. Like he's he's by far the uh, biggest, most physical, uh, most athletic. Uh, force on on the floor so you want to see you want to see him be aggressive because offense is what his where his skills lie but I thought was really neat was the the fact that he all the analytics all the metrics say he's supposed to be this god-awful defender but he actually did some really good really good switching uh really impressive stuff and and those are things that I, even Jalen Dern has struggled with this season but Wiseman and maybe you can credit this to his time at Golden State watching um Draymond Green, because when he switched out onto much smaller guards, he actually did a great job of of not losing contact with them, but also not overplaying and allowing uh, guards to go by him. I thought that was really nice. I thought the fact that he has a seven six wingspan, he used it to his advantage. Uh, he made plays simply by being tall and understanding, you know, how to use his wingspan, and that sounds. That doesn't sound impressive, but it is. It, it shows that he has a much greater uh, feel for the game than I think people realize. 
So, and I, I don't want to overreact over one game. Maybe he'll not be as good uh, over the coming months as he looked in that first game. But I, I think there's reason to be hopeful. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, that's all you can hope for at this point with this kid. You know, he's so young and, and he's so green that any, any, any sign of positivity is, is good. Uh, And yeah, I liked what I, I liked what I saw from him and, and we'll see what he does on Thursday against the magic. And if maybe he gets a little more uh, extra play, I think, I think at this point with 20 some odd games left, let's just throw him in the starting lineup. I I don't know. Let's, let's just. Let's get this kid as many minutes as we can. I mean, I know obviously Jalen Duran and and uh, Jaden Ivy and some of the younger guys should should take precedence uh, uh, over over Wiseman, but let's just see as much as we can of this kid and and uh, and then you you mentioned it on last week's pod. Throw him in the summer league. Throw him everywhere. Like all the games you can get out of him. Let's see what we can do. Um, but yeah, uh, speaking of games and all the games. This uh, past weekend was All Star Weekend, and it was it was an interesting one. Uh, I I didn't catch everything, but I did see Calvin Johnson go up for a dunk in the celebrity game. I saw WWE wrestler The Miz hit a half court shot that should have counted, but does but didn't count. I mean, and the celebrity game they should just give it to him. He hit a half court shot, like. We let's throw NBA rules out the out the window. Like a wrestler hit a half court shot, just give it to him, um, and it would have sent the game to overtime or or whatever. I I I don't remember. Um, Jay and Ivy had a nice showing in the the jeez, uh, what do they even call it anymore? Rising Stars game, the Rising Stars competition. Yeah, he he had a good showing, and he looked uh, he looked nice in the the skills competition as well. And then this kid, Mac McClung, who's played. Two games in his entire NBA career. Uh, hasn't even played for the team that he was there to represent, the Philadelphia 76ers. I think he saved the dunk competition, Keith. Like, well, no, I, I'm overreacting. I thought he, this kid, it was a good story. He comes out of nowhere, and he puts up some really nice dunks. I mean, it wasn't. It wasn't like watching Vince Carter in 2000 or anything like that, or watching Zach Levine versus Aaron Gordon or Dwight Howard's days. Or, but it was the best thing I've seen in at least the last four or five years. All right. On one hand, yes. Mac McClung was by far the best thing about All-Star Weekend, the entire weekend. Uh, yeah. He was the one thing that people, seems like consensus uh, came away happy about. Uh, but the problem is, and I, I said this before, it's like the, the All-Star game was okay last year. I thought it had a good ending. and they, It's like saying the Elam system fixed the All-Star game. Clearly it did not. Uh, <laughs> it did not. It, it, it put a Band-Aid over the problem, but it didn't It didn't solve the, uh, the disease. It, it just masked the symptoms, uh, which is the fact that players really don't, for whatever reason, they, they don't want to play hard or even – remotely anything resembling real basketball in an all-star game. Uh, Matt McClung is great, was great for the dunk contest. I I, I thought he was, he was great. And you know what? Credit to, to Trey Murphy, who would have won it going away last year with, against last year's field. He's a yeah. footnote that's up in this year's field. That's how good Matt McClung was. But the problem is, is Matt McClung going to be in every all-star dunk contest from here on out? Because if he's not, then we're back to the drawing board of, 
the, the names that people want to see, none of them want to be in it. And you said it yourself, Mac McClung is not an NBA player. He was signed to a two-way contract. I think he had a cup of literally, I think cups of coffee have taken more time to drink than <laughs> than Mac McClung's actual NBA experience right now. Yeah. So, and there's a good chance that he never has a real NBA career. He just doesn't, He he's a dunks, uh, I, want, I don't want to say he's a, he's a dunk contest specialist. That's kind of what he does. That's what he's been known for since high school is being this, you know, short, stocky 6'2 kid that can throw down amazing dunks because he has an incredible vertical leap. But that's not, like, the fans want to see John Morant in the dunk contest. They want to see, you know, Shaden Sharp thinks he's too good for the dunk contest now. So I, I really don't know how the NBA solves this going forward in, in terms of making the, making the dunk contest appeal to, you know, the, the names that NBA fans around the world want to see. Because you didn't get that. Let, you, in, in my opinion, the NBA got very lucky in the dunk contest. And then in the All-Star game, they kind of got the comeuppance where, you know, the, the problems with that game kind of seeped out. And then you had, I think, Mike... Uh, uh, Mike Malone, who coached the quote unquote coached the Western Conference, called it you know one of the worst basketball games he's ever seen, and he wasn't wrong. It was just a low energy. Yeah, you had guys hitting a bunch of threes. Jason Tatum scored fifty five points against air. I, I think um, Jalen Brown might have put a hand in his face once or twice in, in the entire game, but it was just it was just guys giving each other open shots and giving each other layups and giving each other dunks and. Offense is only as exciting as the defense being played against it, in my opinion. So basically what we watched on Sunday was uh, a layup line for, for two yeah. and a half hours. We, we just watched a layup, two, 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 guy, two teams doing layup lines. Yeah, and, it, was, it was bad. Yeah. It, it, was, it was rough to watch, and I only tuned in for about five minutes, um, and I realized what was happening and how bad it was and how nobody was playing a, a lick of defense and guys are just, you know, I, and, and usually um, look, I, we've had, we've had all-star games in the past where, where teams didn't play defense, but you would get something fun. Like, uh, like Shaq trying to cross over memo a core. Like that was, that was fun. Yeah. Or, or guys would throw down like a flashy dunk or something like that. And like I said, like I said, I didn't watch this whole thing, but what I saw was just like a layup line. There was nothing fancy, nothing fun. Nobody was seemed to be having a good time or, uh, I mean, I don't know. I, I, I've always thought that if you're going to do an all-star game, you should do it like the, the, like major league baseball does it where the winner gets like home field advantage. Like you should get home court advantage. At, is that I, still true? Did baseball do away with that? Or is that still true? I don't know. I don't watch baseball, but my understanding was that that's what they at least did at some point in time. And, and then you, you get a competitive game because, you know, home court advantage matters. Uh, well, you'd have to go back to the East West format, which is another thing entirely. Yeah. But, oh yes. They should. Yes. Please get rid of this stupid draft thing. I'm so tired of it. It's dumb. I hate yeah, it. Well, I, you know what? I honestly thought it was, I thought that the draft was actually the most entertaining part of the night because it was, they kind of tried to send you back to the playground where the two best players on the court were just picking teams. You know, I pick this guy, the other guy picks the other guy that he likes. And you, at the end of the day, everybody's on a team. 
but it didn't stir up any competitiveness. It was just, you know, here's your jersey and here's your jersey. And the only thing it affected was which guys in which jersey were giving up free layups to the which guys in the other jerseys. It just it didn't mean anything at the end of the day. And it was just such an empty like letdown when the game started. Like, oh no, these guys still don't care. And <laughs> and, and I'll say this. I think it's a reflection on, on I hear rings culture being blamed a lot. I've gotten a lot of that in the last few days that players care uh players care too much about rings and they don't want to do anything else, which I think is BS because even in the, every year there's only a handful of teams and a handful of superstars that have any shot at a ring. Like I, I do you think Shy uh Alexander didn't try hard on the all-star game because he's too focused on winning a championship this season for Oklahoma city. Shut up. It, it's not right, right. like, here's the thing. Um, and I don't, I know this is a history podcast and I really hate um, crapping on the current generation, you know, at the expense of propping up the, the older generation, which we talk about uh, constantly. I, I don't want to be seen as that guy, but, Oh, we should on the old generation plenty too. <laughs> yeah, we do. I, I think we I think we try to be fair there. Right. But here's the thing. If, if all right, so here here's in my opinion, this is this is the root of the problem, is that there is always a hierarchy in all-star games. And we we just flat out put it in neon lights by making uh Giannis captain and putting his name on the jersey and LeBron captain and putting his name on the like we, we made it very clear there's a hierarchy and it, that's always been that way. But the thing is, if you got into an all-star game with Isaiah Thomas or Magic Johnson and you half-assed it, A, they wouldn't pass you the ball and B, you wouldn't play very long. And then that tradition continued down to Michael Jordan. If you were on an all-star team with Michael Jordan, it, he was always playing for keeps, whether or not the game mattered, it didn't matter. So if you were out there and you were just being sloppy and, just standing, you know, playing Ole defense. Like, if you weren't out there giving your all, Jordan would, in an all-star game, Jordan would have you taken out. And Kobe Bryant, same way. And now, I, I think we have too much, and I really hate being this guy again, but I think we have too much buddy-buddy. Um, no one wants to say anything. Like, here, here's what it looked like to me last night, that no one on the court want. I, I, I think – by the body language, I think a lot of guys were disgusted by the lack of effort, but no one wanted to be the guy that was the tryhard in an all-star all-star game. Like that, it has now become very uncool uh, to break a sweat in an all-star game. It's not you're supposed to be above it if you're an NBA player. It's not supposed to matter to you. Just collect your your accolade, put on the uniform, and go on. Right. And I would very much like to see some leadership from best the the very best players in the league but Giannis LeBron uh eventually it'll be Luka Doncic and uh Nikola Jokic and, and those guys I would like to see them put pressure on the guys that are on the court with them to go on and play like but that require that would require them to give effort and I, don't, I haven't seen it from them either I know I'm going on about this but I think it's very much a player uh, oriented problem. And I think it has to be a player oriented solution. Um, you know, I, I, I agree with you and I'm going to say something that might not be popular. Um, and it's something that, I don't know, maybe I, I don't know. 
here's what I'm just going to go ahead and say. Uh, players got to start caring about the fans again. Look, I'm not saying that you need to cater to our every need and, and all that and say all the things we want you to say and do all the things, stay in a team, you know, instead of going to get the bag or going to do whatever it is that you want to do. But like, if you, if you're, you, you kind of have a duty. If you're playing in front of an arena full of fans, you should, uh, you should give them a show. Like they're here, you know, there's kids out there that are there to see their hero play. Like, and I, I, I don't know. I mean, maybe it doesn't matter to, to a kid, but I, 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 when I went to go see Pistons games, when I was a kid, I would hope that Grant Hill would go out and put his, his best game out there. And, and, and I, you know, I don't know whether or not he did. I was too young to even know if that was a thing or not, but, but I just, I don't know. Uh, I'm just, maybe I'm being an old head and being stupid or, uh, you know, I, I'm all for the player empowerment era, but like, let's, let's do the right thing for the fans and, and at least just, you know, throw down a couple of fun dunks or something. I don't know. Make us laugh, do something, do some globe trout or stuff. I'm not saying you have to, Go play the most competitive game you've ever played in your entire life, but man, don't bore me to death. Yeah, and this is the thing: they, the NBA has done this to themselves. They've cleared out since the last CBA when the players wanted a, a week long vacation, which they have. They cleared out an entire week on the NBA schedule in the middle of the season, where no basketball is being played other than the All Star game. So for a seven day period, a seven day period, no other NBA basketball is being played to help us forget about this uh, ridiculous farce that they just put on. All we have to talk about until Thursday is this game. And if, if I, it's not like it's a preseason game, right? Like, yes, the game doesn't count the standings, but this is the showcase game. This is the game that the NBA wanted. They schedule it. So everybody what tunes in for just that game. So if you're going to put it on this stage, like they have, what does that do to your product? I I mean, yeah, the fans are one thing, but you're, you're also, you're just flat out hurting your own product. And I'm sorry, you can throw as much, uh, you, you can show me the figures of how many billions of dollars the NBA rakes in, and that's great. But eventually that bubble's going to burst when the TV partners get frustrated. Like, uh, you think T, the, the conversations at TNT are, are about the NBA and how much they're paying them, how much... God knows how much they paid them for the rights to that all-star game. Right. Yeah, I mean, what do you think those conversations are, are like right now? Do you think they they feel like they're getting a uh, bang for their buck? I mean, probably not. And the players get money based off of how much revenue the league, the league pulls in every year. So that domino is, is going to, as soon as that first domino falls where the TV partners suddenly stop shoveling money to the NBA because they don't like the consistency of their product, uh, I mean, that is going to be a huge reckoning that the players will have brought on themselves. I don't want to get doom and gloom. That's that those days are probably very far off if they happen. Uh, but you got to think this is not just about, you know, the, the family of four that can afford one game a year and they go to one game and watch, you know, someone get load managed. That's a problem in itself, <laughs> but it's also going to be a problem if people stop watching games. Yeah. Which, which I, I'm sorry, but that could actually realistically happen in the future. Like they need to be careful about the quality that they treat their product with. Well, it's already impossible to watch an NBA game for most fans, especially if you, you know, with these regional uh, sports networks, 
but that's a whole nother <laughs> complaint that we won't get into. I, I do have one more thing and then we'll move on. We'll just okay. real quick, one more thing and we'll move on. If, if the NBA thinks that, uh, that after me watching the all-star weekend and how lazy it was that I'm going to want to potentially tune into some sort of mid-season tournament that no one's going to care about. Uh, yeah. Shove it up your ass, man. I, 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 I have no, I don't want to, I don't care about this mid-season tournament thing that everybody keeps talking about that doesn't mean anything. And players are clearly not going to put any effort into. We need, we need to just get past that and just not do it at all. Yeah, we, we, we need to figure out. And again, when I, we, we have a very, very good collection of, of young players in the NBA today. They, they can obviously play. It's just, how do we get some consistency uh, out of the, the collection of players that we currently have? It's, it's just, I don't know. I, I don't like the the way things are trending at the moment. And it has nothing to do with quality of talent that's on the floor. It has everything to do with the amount of effort that we get. And, and look, I, I want to say this about players, you know, worrying about being hurt. That's bullshit. More players have been hurt, have, have suffered a season ending injury at home, tripping over their dogs than have suffered a, a season ending injury playing in the all-star game. And the all-star game has been held since what the mid fifties, late fifties, something like that. Uh, yeah, stop stop pretending like it's the Pro Bowl and it's American football and injuries happen on you know, every other play. This is basketball. Guys play. Guys do this in open runs during the summer in front of no TV cameras. Don't 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 give me this BS that they're afraid of getting hurt all of a sudden in a freaking All Star game. Stop right. it. Right. Yeah, if that's the case, then don't go to the Drew League and don't do all this stupid stuff. Yeah, just don't, a, don't even get out of bed in the morning. Just, just stay in bubble wrap and have someone carry you to the game every night. The, like, the, I, I know I, I'm, I'm sounding ridiculous, but yes, someone could get hurt next year in the All-Star game, just like they could have gotten hurt you know, every year since 1955, and they really haven't. I think the worst thing I, I can remember is Kobe broke his nose from an elbow you know, like 10 years ago, but... No one's ever, no team has ever had their season affected uh, because one of their guys appeared in an all star game. Right. The Drew League, where, by the way, one of the top lottery picks got injured this yeah. year. So, okay. Uh, all right. All right. Let's, uh, okay. One more thing. One more thing. One more thing. Not all star related. One more thing, real quick. Shout out to, uh, to, to Marcus Johnson for dunking again at 67 years old. I look forward to these videos every year. This was by far the funniest. He called himself Black McClung, and <laughs> I laughed so hard. Uh, all right, all right, let's get into the trades. Uh, we'll start off with the best uh, Pistons trades. Go ahead and give us the terms of the Bill Lambeer trade. Okay, so this is uh, when trader Jack McCloskey uh, took over the Pistons. Well, he had taken over the Pistons. for This was actually year three for him, really. And Trader Jack, you know, true to his name, he, he, he made a lot of deals. Uh, believe it or not, most of them didn't work. Uh, what made him special is that he knew once he made a good deal not to swap that player out again. He knew when he had a good thing. So, you know, six or seven deals into his NBA career, he had gotten very little out of it. 
And then he finally struck gold about a month prior to this when he traded Greg Kelser to the Seattle Supersonics for uh, a reserve named Vinnie Johnson, which we went over with in the in the Vinnie Johnson episode. That was a, I mean, that was a hell of a deal. Right. But that wasn't quite as impressive as the trade he made, I think, a month later. Uh, February 16th, 1982, deadline. Uh, I don't know if it was deadline day, but it was... Well, it was around then. Uh, so <clears throat> the Pistons in this deal sent Phil Hubbard, uh, who is their starting power forward, uh, Paul McKeskey, who was pretty good backup center, a 1982 uh, first-round pick, wound up being the 12th pick in that, that year's draft, uh, to Cleveland for Kenny Carr and Bill Lambier. And what makes this really interesting I think is that it was viewed at the time as the Kenny Carr trade <laughs> because Kenny Carr was the guy getting the minutes for Cleveland was awful. They were, they were arguably the NBA's worst team that season. And Kenny Carr was a guy starting for them, averaging, you know, 15 points, 10 rebounds, a decent power forward. Uh, he was the guy getting the numbers. Meanwhile, Bill Ambeer wasn't even starting for Cleveland. Uh, he, he was a good backup. And, so, but the thing is, I, I don't think Jack McCloskey even really cared about Kenny Carr because he moved on from him in that same draft for uh, the 1982 first-round pick. Uh, he traded him to Portland uh, shortly thereafter for and got, and got a first-round pick back in return. So, really, that's what the genius about this was. He got Bill Lambeer for you know, a, a role player, a backup, and a, and a first-round pick. And then he got a first-round pick back for the other guy that he got with with Lambeer. Just is such a great trade. Yeah, way to and, flip that. Troy Weaver-esque. And the, it, and the thing is, Lambeer, uh, and we'll get into this when we eventually do a, do a Bill Lambeer episode, but Lambeer comes to Detroit, and he moves right in to the start. Like, he doesn't need time. to. He just He just needed an opportunity. Because James Edwards, uh, ironically, was the one that took away his minutes in Cleveland, and the, so Lambier, the center, not the writer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I know, I'm pretty sure James Edwards uh, was not even close to being born at this point. No, he uh, the Athletics James Edwards. Uh, all right, so, and here, here's the uh, kind of the sad irony in this: the the pick that. Uh, and we'll, we'll transition this uh, later on into our worst of trades. You know what? You know what? I'm, I'm going to save this for when we transition to our worst of trades. But keep in mind that uh, the the Pistons got Kenny Carr and Bill Lambeer in this deal, and then they flip Kenny Carr to Portland for Portland's 82 first round pick, and and that will become a story of its own later on. But as far as Bill Lambeer goes, uh, a borderline Hall of Fame career, in my opinion. Uh, I'm not saying he's a sure thing, but I'm also not saying that he doesn't belong in the, in the discussion. Uh, he was that good for the Pistons. And within a year of, of him being traded off of Cleveland's bench to Detroit, he was an all-star. He, he made several all-star teams in Detroit. Uh, people forget about, they think Bill Lambeer is just this, this dirty uh, psychological um, terror. No, he was a really damn good basketball player, led the league in rebounding at one point. Uh, I, I have nothing but but love for Bill Ambeer's career. Hey, I don't. Uh, 
I don't know if this is necessarily breaking news. You might already know it, but RJ Hampton is a Detroit Piston now. Is he? Yep. RJ Hampton uh, had cleared waivers and the Pistons have signed him. Um. So who did they release? To? Oh, no, that's right. They have an open roster spot, so they don't have yep. to release anybody, do they? RJ Hampton is a Piston. There you go. Okay, so yeah, RJ Hampton of... <laughs> I I don't really know what to make of RJ Hampton. And I, I saw that he got released by Orlando earlier. And the reason he got released is just that he wasn't very good. Uh, he came over to them from uh, Denver and the, uh, the trade that sent Aaron Gordon to the Nuggets. And I, it's not like that he hasn't had opportunities. Orlando's backcourt has been decimated by injuries all season long. And he's this combo guard and he's just, he's never played well. And I, he's young. He's really fast. He's really athletic. Uh, but he's also never been very productive. Yeah. And look, I, I this is this is one of Troy Weaver's you know reclamation projects that he absolutely loves. So I I'm, I'm sure he can turn. He feels that he can turn uh, R.J. Hampton around, or at least this is a very low risk acquisition for them. Uh, more than anything, I'm hoping this means that we don't have to see any more Corey Joseph. Uh, apologies to Corey Joseph. <laughs> But I, I think that alone might make the season just a you know one percent more interesting uh, the rest of the way. We're gonna have to send Kojo a fruit basket after this. Um, all right, let's uh, so let's move on to the next trade here. Uh, the Pistons trade the best stash and mullet combo in the league when they, <laughs> when they send Kelly Trapuca away. Uh, what are the terms for uh, the Kelly Tra- Kelly Trapuca? Adrian Dantley trade. Okay, so here's the thing that really makes this impressive to me is that Kelly Tripuka wasn't he was a 21 point a game scorer as a rookie with the Pistons. He he was the best uh, rookie scorer the Pistons have ever had. Uh, he he was that good right away. He was an all star two out of his first three seasons. And if he hadn't gotten hurt, uh, he probably would have been an all star all three of his first three seasons. So for a guy like that and to trade him at what, how old was he at that point? Uh, what was he? 26 years old. Yeah, so like still pretty young. Yeah. Think about it. If, if Sadiq Bay had made two all-star games in his first three seasons here and the Pistons traded him. Now you would have gotten a lot more for Sadiq Bay than James Wiseman, but people would have been upset. Yeah. And Adrian Dantley at that time, yeah, he was an incredible. We, we we did the Adrian Dantley episode about a month ago. Uh, I have all the respect for him, but by 1986, this was a guy in his his 30s that was seen as being on his way down. Uh, he had massive chemistry problems in uh, Utah, <clears throat> feuded uh, feuded with their coach, and Jack McCloskey takes this risk. He he makes this deal where he sends Kent Benson, who was he was essentially a, a, the, I would say the, you know, I, I take it back. He was, he was still, no, he wasn't starting anymore. Uh, he was the backup. But in, in any case, he sent Ken Benson, who was a rotation player for them still, and Kelly Tripuca to Utah for Adrian Danley and a couple of second round picks in 1987 and 1990. And I think it's kind of interesting that the Pistons were the one getting picks in that deal, which kind of, 
says a lot about how Adrian Dantley, despite his his great scoring numbers, was viewed around the league. It was kind of like a problem. It was I don't think it was that dissimilar to like how Russell Westbrook is viewed today, where he makes a lot of money, gets his stats, but you know, the word around the league is that you can't really win with him. And that was the reputation that Dantley had. So for for the Pistons and for uh, Trader Jack to trade his 26-year-old two-time All-Star, you know, the guy that had helped uh, pump life into the Pistons franchise for the really the first time ever, and take this huge risk on this guy that was really on the downside of his career, who had never won anything despite putting up numbers and was seen as a ball hog. I, I think that people don't talk about this deal enough, and I, I really wish they should because – Dantley is unfairly seen as a failure in Detroit because they traded him before they won the championship, which is just revisionist bullshit. Right. You know, they, they were, you know, one phantom foul away from winning a championship the year before with Dantley. And Dantley was a monster in the, the 88 finals against the Lakers. So I, I, I really wanted to point this one out uh, simply because it showed uh, an incredible sense of risk trading, you know, young for old, and someone on his way up that was viewed as on his way up versus, you know, you know, for someone that was on his viewed as being on his way down. And the irony is, uh, if you'll let me finish real quick, is that Kelly Tripuka, he, he kind of vanished as soon as he got into, got to Utah. Like they were more of a half court. Uh, he didn't mesh very well with Stockton uh, and Malone uh, at all. He was more of a ball dominant play. He could do the off ball stuff as a shooter, but, and that's what they thought they were getting. But for the most part, um, he, Kelly Tripuka was very similar, I think, to Sadiq Bey skills-wise in that he was a guy that could shoot, but for the most part, he wanted the ball in his hands and he wanted to attack the rim and he wanted to create for himself. <laughs> and Adrian Dantley surpassed everybody's expectations by actually fitting in in Detroit and, and molding his game you know, to fit around Isaiah Thomas until you know things just got too bad between those two. Uh, but yeah, I, I really love this deal and it, I, maybe I'm the only one. I don't know. No, I mean, it, it, this, that deal, I mean, Dantley, obviously, you know, things didn't work out and there were some chemistry issues between him and Isaiah and just about everybody else. Yeah. But, but, but it is true that Dantley really helped turn this Pistons into a, this Pistons team into a contender. I mean, they were, they were somewhat of a middling, you know, playoff worthy team before that with Tripuka, but but Dantley's scoring and his ability and the things that he brought to the court and his weird body <laughs> type that we talk about uh, on on the episode which I, I recommend everybody listen to really just changed the entire fortune of this Pistons team it's 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 a big deal it's a huge trade um you mentioned that the Pistons actually had to give a, dra- a draft pick over for uh or the, uh, what, what what was it? The Jazz had to give a draft pick in order to take on Dantley for the, give, give a draft pick to the Pistons in order to take on Dantley. Yeah, they, they, I mean it wasn't great, but they the Jazz actually sent the Pistons a couple of second round picks, right? Uh, so, one in 80, 1987 and one in nineteen ninety. Then either of them really amounted to anything. So that's interesting, and and I know we have uh, a different one on our list here, but let's bump ahead and we'll we'll bump back to the sheet here, but. Um, the Pistons send a draft pick over to Dallas along with Adrian Dantley right. 
for Aguirre. So it's almost like, you know, I know a lot of people look, I, 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 I think this is stupid that people think this, and I know it's not basketball related, but people are, you know, uh, think that, that uh, the, the, the Rams had to throw in like, you know, J- Jared Goff and two, two first round picks or the, you know, so the lions would, would take the deal like, or, or, or whatever, you know, like they, like, it's just a stupid, it's a stupid thing that it, but, but in this case, it makes sense where it's like Adrian Dantley is he's, he, at this point in the, in, in his career, he's known as kind of a problem. And yeah, but he, I mean, he will, to, to be fair, when the Pistons traded Dantley, he, he was just about to turn 34 years old. Okay. Yeah. I guess that makes sense. So I, I think the age, because Aguirre was seen as very much of a, a problem in Dallas. Like that was a problem for problem trade uh, meant to bounce that the Pistons were gambling would balance out their, their chemistry issues because Aguirre was so close to Isaiah Thomas. But I, I do think, I think more so than the Pistons uh, or the original, when the Pistons got Danley, I think when they gave him up, he was, it was kind of clear that he was, at the tail end of his career and his career still ended prematurely. I think he broke his, his leg or his foot, I think the next season with Dallas. And that was kind of it for him. Uh, but it, it was, the, the, I think the, the fact that Aguirre was still several years, several years younger uh, than Dantley was a much bigger factor uh, when they made that deal, which is why the Pistons probably had to give up that pick. Cause in Dallas's mind, even though they're getting rid of a problem uh, in Aguirre, they probably didn't figure that, Stanley would come in and solve their issues for them like Aguirre would for the Pistons. Sure. Well, Aguirre, you know, I, we put him on the, on the best list because he, he did come in and he solved a lot of problems for the Pistons. He immediately, he immediately changed the, the chemistry of the team and his willingness to, to go to the bench as a star player. Like Aguirre was a star, all-star player. Like, you know, he wasn't just some guy who was, who was kind of good. He was a, he was a guy that could have went anywhere in the league and started and been an all-star, but he, he put himself on the bench willingly because he knew that Dennis Rodman was, was a better chemistry fit for the lineup. And, and that helped lead to a championship. I, I mean, you know, I, I love it. I, I, I love the acquired trade and I know he wasn't here super long, but he helped win two championships and, and it was because of his unselfishness that it happened. And I think that's why we got to put him on the list. Yeah, Aguirre, and, and this is kind of the antithesis of most, you know, superstar egos. Uh, he allowed his, his game to age gracefully. Uh, he, he came to the Pistons as a starter and very willingly took that backseat to Isaiah Thomas and Joe Dumars, was, was fine being that third option. And in that second season, like you mentioned, uh, he was comfortable going to the bench so Dennis Rodman could start. And being the the Pistons, he wasn't even the sixth man because Vinny was that. You know, he was the seventh man a lot of nights, but he was okay with that, uh, and he thrived in that role. And even when the bad boys fell off uh, and it started to break apart, he was still really good as a, as a reserve uh, sixth seventh man. So, and I think that is a tremendous credit to Aguirre because not a lot of guys are willing to do that. And we'll get to one of them very, you know, towards the end of this episode. But a lot of guys, you know, they have that ego when they're a perennial all-star and they just can't let go and they can't accept that if they want to continue having an impact, they have to do it as a role player. And, and Aguirre understood that almost right away. Um, 
Well, then the next uh, the next trade is, is similar to the Aguirre one. This is going to yep. be a a trade that helps bring in a championship, and everybody already knows what we're about to talk about. The Pistons uh, work on a three team deal to bring in Rasheed Wallace. Do you have the uh, full terms for that? I was looking at it of earlier. Course. Confused the hell. Of course. All right. So this, I, I think, is without question the greatest trade in Pistons history. I don't think there's anything else that can come close to this. So this, believe it or not, this deal actually, the genesis of this deal started two years prior in 2002. Uh, and this also speaks to how Joe Dumars understood his role uh, as a general manager. Uh, his very first um, lottery pick was a, a player named Rodney White out of UNC Charlotte, top 10 pick, a one and done, uh, supposedly had all the, the tools to step in and be that small forward after Grant Hill left town. And he never mm-hmm. got into games. Uh, he just wasn't very good. He, he, he didn't, wasn't very mature of a player and he never matured as much talent as he, as he had, he just, he didn't have it. And Joe Dumars, you know, the greatest thing about his, his, time at GM as as a GM was he didn't have an he didn't he never let his ego get in the way of making a good deal uh he basically within a year of drafting Rodney White admitted he made a mistake uh but he doesn't let Rodney White stay in Detroit and continue to hurt his trade value he immediately flips him to the Denver Nuggets uh for a future first that they had that belonged to Milwaukee uh for in 2004 that was when the pick was owed. So having that uh, little bit of ammo on, under his belt, uh, Joe Dumars showing tremendous patience, watches every other team in the league, every other contender for that 0304 season, uh, expend their assets, expend their cap space, uh, trade their draft picks. Everyone's loaded up uh, for Bear going into that. Because that, that – that season it was seen that like you could win a championship like a lot of teams there wasn't that one great dominant team even though the lakers brought in you know a very old carmelone and, and gary payton it it was seen as an opportunity uh, for a lot of teams and the very last team to make a move was the detroit pistons they joe dumars had a bunch of expiring contracts he had two first round picks coming up that he that he had to deal with and he waited he sat on those assets uh, for that whole season, and he sat on them, and he waited until you know opportunity struck because he tried to get Rasheed Wallace from Portland, just straight from Portland. Before uh, Portland was asking for Darko Milicic and some stuff, which in hindsight would have been a fine deal anyway, but we didn't know that at the time, so that's fine. So he he sat and he 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 waited, and then Portland eventually flipped uh, Rasheed Wallace to Atlanta. And Atlanta didn't have nearly as much attachment. It was a salary dump for them. Uh, they they traded, I think, what Theo Ratliff and Sharif Abdul Rahim, and they were just what well, they wanted. Rashid's expiring contract, and that was really it. All right. So setting the stage, uh, and and this is February nineteenth, two thousand four. This is when Joe Dumars pounces deadline day, and Atlanta sitting on Rashid Wallace, this talented player. Uh, that's on an expiring contract that they know they're not, he's not resigning. There's no point. They're, they're a destitute franchise. They know they need to rebuild. Uh, Rashid is 29. There's just no fit here for him there in Atlanta. So they look around the NBA and 
nobody has assets. They've already traded theirs except for one team, uh, the Detroit Pistons. So Joe Dumars calls up his his buddy Danny Ainge in Boston and arranges this fantastic three-way deal. Uh, Detroit sends Chucky Atkins, uh, Lindsey Hunter, and a their own the Pistons' own 2004 first-round pick, which wound up being Tony Allen, uh, to the Boston Celtics. And he also sends uh, Jellico Robracha, who, as much as I love Robracha, uh, he was having his heart problems were very public at the time. There was a good chance that he, no one knew if he would be able to play ever again, you know, from day to day. It, it was just a scary thing. So he, he couldn't really be counted on, unfortunately. He sends Robracha, Bob Sura, and that, two, and, and, and that 2004 pick that belonged to Milwaukee that he got from Denver two years before for Rodney White. He sends that to Atlanta. And in return, uh, Rasheed Wall, he gets not only gets Rasheed Wallace from Atlanta, uh, but he also gets Mike James from Boston. And this is the crazy underrated thing that people don't think about. Right. Because when you mention the pit bulls, uh, as part of the deal, which this isn't allowed anymore, uh, the Boston Celtics waived Lindsey Hunter and Lindsey went right back to the Pistons. <laughs> He was only in there for salary cap purposes. So the, the Pistons get Lindsey Hunter back, so he's not even really a loss in this deal. So they give up, you know, half a dozen backups. Not once they don't trade one starter, and they get Rasheed Wallace, still in the prime of his career at 29, uh, added to what's already the best defensive team in the league. From the rest of that season, they they become the greatest defensive team ever. Uh, of all time for for that half last half of the season so much that the nba is terrified of the pistons and changes the rules but that's a different story entirely right and you know it, it just as a side note boston sends chris mills to atlanta just to manage to balance out the make the salaries work but no one cares about that but it, this, this was just a master class in in both asset management and patience by joe dumars uh he he gambled. He absolutely gambled by holding on to all those expiring contracts that weren't playing for him and holding on to those two first round picks that probably weren't going to be of any use to him, just sitting on them until the very last second. And then something amazing popped up and it wound up being arguably the greatest deadline deal in NBA history because the Pistons went from being and also ran to being the best team in the league from that point on and they cruised to a championship. Yep. I mean, it's the, it's, it's, everyone knows this is the trade that changed everything. I mean, they even talk about it on the Pistons uh, 2004 year end review uh, DVD, which if you're not a piss, if you're a Pistons fan, so you don't own this one or you haven't seen it, you're not a Pistons fan. It's, it's such a great, such a great video. It's on YouTube. You can find it. They even talk about it on there. Like this was the game changer. This is the moment because while the Pistons were good, they were like, they they were kind of in a weird slump like before that trade happened. And then she shows up and it changes everything overnight. Uh, the biggest thing though, is uh, I, I wish that I could find a Rasheed Wallace Atlanta Hawks Jersey. I, 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 I would like to own one, one game. He plays in Atlanta one game. And I remember it. Um, and and uh, it, it's it's just so weird if you you can Google and see pictures of him in that Hawks jersey, 
It's so weird to see it. Yeah. But uh, but yeah, one game he plays there, and then he shows up. It. I I wonder if Atlanta. I mean, look, I know they weren't going to keep Sheed, or they didn't think he would resign. But man, they got to feel a little bit dumb. Look, like he had Not so really. much left at him. Well, the entire reason they got for him, they got him is, was because he was an expiring contract, and right. that's the same reason Portland was willing to trade him. So. They really had no choice. Like if they hadn't traded Rasheed Wallace to the Pistons, they 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 got a they got a first round pick out of the deal, a mid first round pick. So and it was Josh Smith who was very good for them, you know, until he wasn't good for them any longer. So I I, I think I think this trade gets unfairly um, looked at as as the, the Pistons just ripping off. The Atlanta Hawks for Rasheed Wallace. I, I disagree. If you look at the circumstances, uh, Rasheed Wallace was not worth much of anything to the Atlanta Hawks. He was worth a lot more to them on another team than he was, you know, for the next two months before he, he obviously would have left in free agency anyway. So, in in return, they got a first round pick out of the deal that wound up being a very productive player for them. So, I, I honestly, I would definitely defend the the. They they had no one left. I said this at the very beginning. They had no one left to trade with. The Pistons were the only only team left in the league that wanted Rasheed Wallace and had actual assets to trade for him. Everyone else had already used their ammo. All right. Well, that wraps up the best trades. Now we're going to get into the worst trades. And, of course, there's a Bob McAdoo trade in the chamber. <sighs> Keith can't wait yeah. to get it get it going. I really, I, I really could afford to wait a little longer, but yeah. Uh, all right, go for it. Yeah, and we 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 covered this trade uh, when we did our Pistons Celtics rivalry episode, so I'm just going to go through the nuts and bolts of this uh, really quick. If you want a more elaborate look at it, please listen to that episode. I'm very proud of it. So September 6, nineteen seventy nine. Uh, you know, just before most teams get into training camp, the, the here's how we're here's how free agency were. The, Pistons, the, the NBA had free agency back then in the late seventies, early eighties, but it was restricted free agency. And what happened was, if a player left you and signed with somebody else, it turned into an immediate sign and trade. You had to negotiate. You couldn't just be player A. Player A leaves team A and signs with team B. It didn't work that way. And generally, what happened was. <laughs> the, the, the compensation that teams would give up to sign free agents was a lot worse than, or was a lot more than the, the actual production they got for that free agent. But I digress. So this all starts when ML Carr, who was a, a valued role player in Detroit, good hustle guy, uh, like garbage pail type wing, uh, he leaves to sign in Boston, but Boston needs to negotiate with Detroit. So Brent Arbach sees that Detroit is a, dumpster fire being run by in his name a, a person that doesn't really know what he's doing to to put it kindly and he offers up uh bob mcadoo a former mvp to detroit as part of the compensation but he says well, I, i'm going to want a little bit more in return than just ml car so he negotiates detroit into this idiotic deal uh where Detroit sends two, they they own their first round pick and an, and an additional first round pick in 1980. He wants both of those, and he gets both of those. 
uh, in, in exchange for uh, Bob McAdoo. And also ML Carr comes in as a free agent. And this is horrible for many ways, but the primary one is that Bob McAdoo is well past his prime. He's banged up. He has no desire to play uh, in Detroit. Did not get along with Bob Lanier at all. Uh, it was very clear a week, two weeks into his time in Detroit that it just was not going to work out. And the Pistons wound up trading Lanier and having their worst season of all time. <laughs> so that one of their picks that they sent to Boston winds up being the number one pick in the 1980 draft. And their own pick winds up being 13th. And, and I'm going to tag this footnote just so people can understand the misery that the Pistons were in. Red Auerbach, who was running the Celtics at the time, takes that those two picks that they got uh, for Bob McAdoo, that first and 13th, they flip them. Uh, he flips them to the Golden State Warriors for a starting center by the name of Robert Parrish and the number three pick in the draft, which they used to select Kevin McHale. So the Pistons unwittingly built a dynasty overnight around Larry Bird and screwed themselves over in the process. Uh, it, as much as the Rasheed Wallace deal was great for the Pistons, uh, this is by far the worst deal the Pistons have ever made and probably ever will make uh, in their history. <sighs> Do you want to just move on? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think we, I think we can. I, if we hadn't already talk, talked about this, I, I could go on more, but there's no point. Um, yeah, guys, listen to our Celtics-Pistons rivalry episode. It's Again, really I think it's a very good one. Uh, we I, I go very much in more in depth about this deal uh, in that episode, but I couldn't do this episode without mentioning this trade. It would just be disingenuous of me. Uh, well, sometimes you know, you trade a player away who you think is, you know, not going to be great, and then he goes to another team and he becomes great. And when it comes to Ricky Pierce, that's exactly what happened to Trader Jack. Yeah, you got so, so I mentioned before how uh, Trader Jack pulled off a master class in that Bill Beer deal where he got, he traded a first rounder and, and some role players for Kenny Carr and Bill Beer, and then turned around and traded Kenny Carr to the Blazers and got a first round pick back. That first round pick uh, wound up being the 18th pick in the 1982 draft, wound up being one Ricky Pierce who we've, uh, again, we've went over extensively in the Vinnie Johnson episode for the reason that he, along with Vinnie Johnson, was one of the great six men in NBA history, but no one knew it at the time. And uh, what happened was Vinnie Johnson, with his job being threatened, uh, plays lights out uh, that following season, makes that six-man role his own, and kind of keeps um, Ricky Pierce from ever getting his foot in the door. So... Uh, Jack McCloskey kind of gives up on Ricky Pierce. And here's the thing. Uh, Jack McCloskey calls this the worst deal he's at, called this in hindsight, the worst trade he ever made. And he's absolutely right. Uh, a year after getting Ricky Pierce and drafting him, uh, they fl he flips him to the San Diego Clippers for a couple of second round picks in 1986 and 1987. And Ricky Pierce goes on to score more points than any ex-Piston in NBA history, and it is still true today. Uh, goes on to win two, six, two 
two six man of the year awards. Uh, Vinny Johnson as great as he has never won the six man of the year award uh, because Ricky Pierce kept beating him in the voting. Uh, not that Ricky Pierce was ever a championship piece. He wasn't, uh, but that also had to do with the fact that he was not never on a great team. Uh, but you, you have to imagine that knowing what he knows in, in hindsight, Jack McCloskey probably wished uh, that he would not have made this deal. And what makes this deal even worse, uh, the two second round picks they got uh, in exchange for Ricky Pierce, uh, one of them wound up being uh, Bruce, and I, I've never heard this name before. This is how obscure this is. Bruce uh, Derryample. I, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Derryample? Bruce Derryample. Okay. Uh, never played a minute in the NBA. And the other one, Believe it or not, these were both the 46 picks in the draft for 86 and 87. They were both the same number. And then the other one wound up being Jeff Hornacek. And you're thinking, oh, my God, uh, Jack, you know, saved himself here. Uh, except he didn't because he had already flipped that pick to Phoenix for one David Third kill, who, who was never really an NBA player of note. So he actually, Jack actually had a chance to have a backdoor uh, success uh in this trade and then he bungled even that uh it was ricky pierce was just bad luck for poor jack mccloskey uh who never really got uh destroyed in the trade with the exception of this one uh well are you picking up this my dogs they're like having a all-out war over there barking at each other i don't know if you can hear it or not but um well the ricky Killing me. Uh, all right. Uh, they're literally shaking the table. Uh, okay. Uh, let's get back on track here. So Ricky Pierce wasn't the only guy that they would trade away who would wind up being good. It's also, guys, seriously, leave the room. It's also uh, Chris Middleton, you know, who is a Bucks. Uh, well, I don't know if I'd say superstar, but definitely a star player. Very good player. Yeah. I think people forget that he was on the Pistons, drafted by the Pistons. And they sent him away in the trade that would get Brandon Jennings. And look, I know Middleton wasn't like he, he wasn't he wasn't a huge part of the Pistons or anything like that. You know, he was a guy that like it was a developmental player and didn't get a ton of minutes, but goes to Milwaukee and just immediately becomes a very good player on a championship team. Um uh, it, it, it just sucks that that's the Pistons' luck. Yeah, to me, this is the – it's not the worst deal in Pistons history because Middleton was a guy that – he was he was coming off an injury uh, when the Pistons drafted him. He was seen as very much a first-round talent that needed – that people didn't know if he would be the same player after blowing his knee out at Texas A&M. Uh, he comes in, has some flashes towards the end of the season. It doesn't really impress Joe Dumars. He trades him. Uh, because he's very much in a hurry to witness, to build a good team again because he's starting to feel the heat from Tom Gorris, who had just taken over as owner. And, yeah, he he trades Middleton. And this was really seen as the Brandon Knight because Brandon Knight was a lottery pick point guard for the Pistons that was a starter almost from day one. And he trades Brandon Knight uh, and Chris Middleton to the Bucks for one Brandon Jennings, who was a phenomenal uh he he just lit the world on fire as a rookie and then had disappointed 
or I would say had failed to live up to that promise since. And yeah, it's easy to look at this trade in hindsight and say uh, this was an awful deal. And it was, uh, but it wouldn't have been if Brandon Jennings hadn't tore his Achilles because he was playing very, very well. It looked like he might actually turn into the guy that he was supposed to be in Milwaukee uh, after the Pistons had cut Josh Smith and they won seven games in a row during the 14-15 season. And Brandon Jennings was their best player, or at least their their engine. And everything, it looked like that Joe Dumars had actually um, gotten a really good reclamation project. And, you know, one night in Milwaukee, ironically, of all places, uh, Brandon Jennings tries to pick up full court uh, on defense, takes a wrong step, blows out his Achilles, and he's really never the same player again. And that's, I think that's sad. And this deal, as bad as it was in hindsight, I think it's very defensible. I think it's just very, very unlucky. Yep. It's, uh, it's, it's unfortunate, but not as unfortunate as the last trade we have in our worst section. Everybody knows exactly what we're about to talk about. Um, but let me tell you a little story. I'm, I'm in my 20s, sleeping in my apartment. Um, probably a little later in the day than I should be. Uh, all of a sudden, my roommate is slamming, pounding on the door. <laughs> I mean, just like you probably won't, you know, like everyone in the apartment complex could hear him pounding on the door, screaming, Alan Iverson's a piston! Alan Iverson's a piston! And I, I, I wasn't upset. I wasn't mad at first. I was like, holy crap, Alan Iverson. It's the same way I felt about the Blake Griffin trade. Like people, you know, smart sports fans and stuff on Twitter were all like, I can't believe the Pistons made this trade. And all I could think about was, oh my God, Blake Griffin's a piston. Like we have a superstar. Allen Iverson is a piston. Like this is awesome. I can't wait to get his jersey and all this stuff. Um, and he made me regret that uh, pretty quickly. <laughs> pretty quickly. I'd say the, the best thing that happened during Iverson's run was – that amazing full court pass uh, that the he just, pass yeah, yeah, it was it's amazing. Um, and it's on any Iverson highlight reel that you could find. But other than that, oh my God, this did not work out. Do you have the full terms of this trade? Uh, I mean, it's really simple. It was Chauncey Billups and Antonio McDice to the Denver Nuggets for Allen Iverson. And once again, as a condition of, not as a condition, um, but, but it was like a handshake, uh, wink, wink part of the deal, the Nuggets then released uh, McDice so he could go back to the Pistons, which in hindsight was weird because he would have he would have helped the Nuggets a lot more because they were a better team. Right. Um, yeah, they probably wish they hadn't in retrospect. You know, he, he would have helped a great deal against the, the Lakers in the playoffs that year. So, yeah, Joe Dumars had a saying uh, stemming from his own experiences with the bad boys and how that team was allowed to uh, break themselves up and age out uh, very ungracefully. You either you're you're going off the cliff one way or another at some point. You you can either jump off or you could be pushed off. And clearly in this deal, uh, Joe chose to jump. Uh, Billups had just signed a pretty lucrative contract long term. He hadn't his level of play had not fallen off at all, but he was getting up there in years. He was in his thirties and. I'm guessing in Joe Dumars' estimation, he probably had one good year left. 
which he did. He probably had two in reality. Uh, but he he chose to make this deal, not for Allen Iverson, the player, but for Allen Iverson's expiring contract. And I'm sure there was maybe in the back of Joe's mind some hope that Allen Iverson would come to Detroit and be that offensive engine that they lacked. And, yeah, that, that never worked out. Like you said, it was a disaster. Phillips turns Denver into one of the best teams in the league uh, after they were mediocre with Allen Iverson. And Iverson comes and takes uh, one of the – uh, flagship teams of the NBA for that entire decade. And they're good for a little while and until they aren't. <laughs> it, it was just, and the irony is the Pistons do beat the Nuggets both games that season, the head-to-head uh, rematches. But that was the only thing the Pistons really can be a feel, could feel proud of because they, they finished below 500. They barely snuck into the playoffs and they were swept uh, into oblivion by the Cavs. Meanwhile, Billups takes... Uh, the Denver Nuggets to the conference finals, just, just, a, just a disastrous deal. And like I said before, Joe wanted Iverson for the expiring contract. He didn't first. He didn't want Iverson for Iverson. Uh, he he wanted all that cap space. And you know we don't need to go too much into that. But essentially, the cap room that he got for Iverson, he used on Ben Gordon and Charlie Villanueva. Um, just just an extra punch to the gut <laughs> there's nothing ever you you could argue the pistons are still trying to recover from this trade 15 years later yep it's uh <clears throat> it's it, it's a bummer and you know we talked about that uh, amazing work by dumars to to swing the sheed trade and yeah and and you know and it just see and, and and when you were saying all that i'm thinking man like joe should have lasted a little longer and then you go and you look at the Cyrus and stuff and the Ben Gordon, the Char, you know, the villain away the stuff that you mentioned. It's just it all just added up. And eventually we'll we'll cover Joe Dumars as a GM on, on the show. It's coming. I'm telling you, it's coming. We're gonna do it, I promise. Uh but first, uh let's get into the let's let's wrap her up and get into the the weird trades. You've got one from uh way back in the uh in the depression era. Um, let's not okay let's 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 <laughs> let's not exaggerate too much <laughs> all right uh all right at least it, you've got one from the summer of love in 1967 56 years ago 56 years ago before either of us were born uh, thankfully yes all right so it and this is my favorite weird trade in pistons history and it has a typically tragic pistons ending to it but we'll start with the the nuts and bolts it's a three-way trade, January 16th, 1967, uh, between the Bullets, the Pistons, and the Lakers. Uh, as a condition of the deal, it's a straight one-for-one-for-one. For one for one. Uh, very simple. Uh, Ray Scott uh, goes from the Pistons to the Bullets. Uh, Rudy LaRusso goes from the Lakers to the Pistons. And uh, backup center Mel Counts goes from the Bullets to the Lakers. Those are three pretty good players, in case anyone doesn't know. Those, those are three productive players. None of them were stars, but they were good. They were all legit starters in a in a league with only 10 teams. Or 11, I think, 12 at that point. Anyway, so what makes this trade uh, ridiculous is that Rudy LaRusso, he refuses to leave Los Angeles. He, he is Not only does he not refuse to uh, play for the Pistons, he, he never even leaves Los Angeles. And by the time everyone realizes that, uh, Ray Scott and Mel Counts are already playing with their teams. So the NBA can't go up and, and reverse this. 
and the Pistons are screaming bloody murder. What, what's going on here? So even though they have his rights, they have a rights to a player that they, they won't play for them. So how the NBA reconciles this, they give um, the Pistons LA's draft pick, their first round pick that following uh, uh, summer. And as it turns out, that pick winds up being the fourth pick in the draft. So you're thinking, oh, wow, the Pistons actually lucked into this one. This is great. The Pistons have, they were the worst team in the league that season. So they have the first pick and they they also get the fourth pick. They have two of the top four picks in the 67 draft. And we won't talk about how they blew the first pick, but the fourth pick they spent on a player. This is their their grand chance at redemption. They, they pick Sonny Dove, uh, who was a, a power forward, averaged three points in two years with the Pistons, and he was out of the league in, in the NBA after in, in the ABA uh, after that, and didn't last long there either. And Hell of a name, this, though. Yeah, Sonny Dove. That's that's a unique Great name. one. Yeah. That sounds like a good name for a basketball player. Uh, so what what makes this uh, even more tragic is that the fifth pick in the draft belonged to the New York Knicks, and they selected one Walt Clyde Frazier, who is in the Hall of Fame, uh, one of the best two-way point guards in NBA history. And the Pistons already having Dave Bing on their roster decided, we don't need two great guards, because why would anyone, really? <laughs> so they, But we have this whole at power forward. Who is the best power forward on our board? Oh, let's let's pick up Sonny Dove. Uh, but yeah, this is the only case that I can recall, and if someone can correct me on it, be my guest. I would love to hear it. That a team was awarded uh, compensate extra compensation because a player refused to leave <laughs> and report uh, to the team he was traded to. And the Pistons actually eventually wound up uh, selling Larusso's rights to the San Francisco Warriors so he could stay in California because that was the only way he LaRusso said he would continue playing in the NBA. <laughs> Guy really liked California. I mean, I can't believe yeah, it. He didn't want, he beautiful didn't want to move. beautiful he, weather. He to, yeah, he didn't want to move out of LA, but he was okay moving to San Francisco. Uh then we got a a, a Dick Versace trade. I know it's Dick Versace, but I like to say Dick Versace because I it's spelled the same way. Um but go ahead. We've got a coach involved or a, a coach involved trade. Yeah, everyone remembers Dick Versace uh, having the big head, uh, curly head of uh, gray hair. He was one of Chuck Daly's uh, best assistants, and Chuck Daly had a lot of great assistants at those times. Most of them wound up being uh, head coaches in the NBA, and that's how we get to this uh, circumstance where the, the Indiana Pacers midseason they fire their head coach. They they're looking for not just an interim guy; they're they're looking for a forever coach. And, you know, all of the other assistants are currently working jobs. This isn't the off season. So the, the Pacers need to compensate anyone that they poach from another team, even if they're giving them a head job. And of course they look to the, uh, not the defending champions, but the, the defending uh, Eastern conference champions, the Detroit Pistons, uh, well known as having, you know, the best run coaching staff in the NBA with, you know, Brendan Sir, Brendan Malone, Dick Versace under Chuck Daly. They they picked Dick Versace, and as a condition of Versace leaving to become Indiana's head coach, they have to trade uh, the Detroit Pistons a second-round pick in 1999, 
uh, 10 years. Not only did they give up a second round pick, they give up one 10 years into the future. And I, I wish I could say that this was a great deal for the Pistons. And it really wasn't. It wound up, Indiana is a championship contender 10 years into the, into the future. Their second round pick is worth next to nothing. It winds up being the 54th uh, pick in the draft. Uh, the Pistons use it to use it to select uh, high flying Melvin Levitt. You know, talk about a great name for a guy that really lived on his vertical leap. Yes. Uh, yeah, Levitt. So you're thinking, okay, that's it's a 54th pick. What can you expect out of that? Well, I got one guy, for instance, that was still on the board when the Pistons pick Levitt was one Manu Ginobili out of Argentina. Yep. Could have had Manu. Could have, but so could, you know, 28 other teams. But we got Mar- we got Melvin Levitate instead. Not for long. He never played it. He never played a minute in the NBA. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Um, all right. And then here's the last one of the day, the weirdest one. Um, eventually, we're going to do an episode about this. We have to. Uh, the, the Pistons trade Otis Thorpe for uh, a draft pick, uh, really any draft pick. Uh, such a weird trade. Uh, he, Otis Thorpe goes to the Vancouver Grizzlies for the draft pick that would wind up being, drumroll, Darko Milicic. Okay, so quick flashback. Uh, Otis Thorpe, who had been nothing but outstanding for the Detroit Pistons since they traded for him two years before, uh, Great pick and roll partner with Grant Hill, uh, huge hands, uh, just just a wonderful workhorse type player that any team would love to have. <sighs> Except that Doug Collins, as is his personality, he wears on people. He's overbearing, and Otis Thorpe is not. Well, he was a very tough player. He wasn't the type of player that really withstood being berated constantly, and really the genesis of the the end to the Doug Collins area started when Otis Thorpe had finally had enough of him and the locker room became toxic as a result. So despite all of that, uh, Otis Thorpe, Doug Collins is desperately trying to save his job in Detroit that summer of 1997. Uh, half the players that were on his team don't no longer want to play for him. And Otis Thorpe was the, the patient zero here. So he figures maybe if he moves Otis Thorpe, he can save the rest. So he trades Otis Thorpe to Vancouver, who is a young team just a few years removed from expansion. I don't know what they were thinking, other than you know maybe here's this you know veteran, reliable veteran guy that can maybe teach our young players you know work ethic in the NBA. That's all I can think of. Uh, Stu Jackson was their GM at the time, and he trades uh, a. Per- protected first round pick for Otis Thorpe. And he's probably looking at the protections on this pick saying, Hey, I'm not going to be around by this time, by the time this pick ever conveys, uh, this is never going to affect me. And he's right. Uh, not only do they fire, uh, Stu Jackson with his pick still in limbo, uh, the Vancouver Grizzlies go through three GMs. They're on their fourth GM by the time the pick actually conveys because it's so heavily protected and the Vancouver Grizzlies are so horribly bad. So every single season, uh, 
98 goes by, 99 goes by, 2000, 2001, 2002. And even the protections get a little bit lower every year, but the Grizzlies are still so bad, it doesn't matter. They they hold on to that pick. And six years go by, and 2003 uh, comes up. The, the Grizzlies are still terrible, mind you. Uh, but that pick is no longer uh, heavily protected. It is only protected at number one. So the the Grizzlies enter that this NBA lottery uh, knowing that two things are going to happen. They are either going to get LeBron James or they are going to get nothing. And the, the Detroit Pistons, because this pick would would have been extinguished um, after 2003. There was no pick. It was not owed after this year. So the Pistons, if the Vancouver Grizzlies had won the first pick, would, would have gotten nothing. So it's this massive high-stakes game of roulette. And you can kind of see the ball rolling around the table. And both the Pistons and Grizzlies are just looking at it, hoping they don't get screwed. And it winds up being the second pick in the draft, uh, which was the best possible outcome and in a mathematically almost impossible outcome for the Pistons. And just the worst thing ever for the Grizzlies in the stacked 3 draft, they get no draft pick. And what makes this weird, uh, not just the fact that, you know, this trade was six years in the making, but the fact that the Pistons with that number two pick totally squander it on Darko Milicic, who we don't need to go into. Everybody understands the, the deal there. But we will do an episode on him later on, as you said. Jeez, you, you almost feel like the Grizzlies wanted to fire Stu Jackson again after that. <laughs> oh my God, I, I cannot imagine. And the, for the Pistons, who, keep in mind, this is the life the Pistons were leading at the time. Uh, uh, they were in the middle of the Eastern Conference Finals as that lottery was going on. Uh, they right. unveiled it at halftime of Game 3 of the, the Conference mm-hmm. Finals that the Pistons were playing in. Uh, they had the very, very rare um, pleasure of playing in the playoff game and also being a major player in the lottery on the same night. It's unbelievable. Um, yeah. But yes, we, we will get into the Darko stuff more. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to just keep trying to talk Keith into doing it soon. Uh, but that's going to wrap up our, our trade episode today. Um, again, I don't remember who, recommended uh that we do this on twitter but thank you to you uh this was a fun a fun episode um usually we tell you what we're going to do next week but we don't know at this point we have something we'll have an announcement shortly but yes yes, as of right now uh tuesday february 21st uh 2023 we are not 100 percent sure what our topic will be next week we it it right we're waiting to hear from someone. That's all we can tell you. And we'll know, we'll know, you'll know as soon as we know, I promise. Uh, keep it locked to our Twitter, uh, bad boys at bad boys beyond. And uh, you'll know soon enough what we're going to do. Maybe it'll be Darko Milicic. I don't know. Uh, we'll, we'll see. Uh, so thank you guys for listening today and uh, we'll see you next week.